0: So, uh, 7.32, the death toll from that London terror attack uh, this week, rising to five people. Dozens more injured. We know that uh, there had been South Korean nationals among those hurt after an assailant initially ploughed a vehicle through pedestrians near the Houses of Parliament and then continued the attack. A police officer also among the dead. Uh, But let's hear about the latest situation uh, with Professor Natasha Underhill from Nottingham Trent University. Thank you for joining us. No problem. Um, Can you just give us a sense of the, the atmosphere in the country Uh, London is no stranger to terror attacks but it it does feel like a shock nonetheless of course it always would be with an incident of this kind.
1: Yes definitely a shock but I think the country has been quite robust in its response in terms of not letting this become a massive fear factor. I think the lack of overreaction and the lack of promotion of fear has really been beneficial to not just London but but Europe in general since the attacks have happened.
0: What do we know so far about the incident itself? Uh, We've got some images that have come out and some eyewitness videos even but uh, have further details begun to, to illuminate this incident?
1: I think we're still a, it, we're still in the process of having an investigation going on but at the moment it, it appears that the uh, the attacker rented a car from a car rental agency on the day and claimed that he was a teacher and needed the car and essentially as you know drove it through a, a crowd of people on Westminster Bridge and um attacked a police officer and tried to gain entry in, into parliament so it was quite a frantic attack that took place
0: We've seen several arrests. Three women, five men arrested in London and Birmingham, so stretching across the, the country. Um, police have also identified the assailant as Khalid Masood. Uh, at 52 years old, he was born in Britain, for what that counts. But again, is there a worry this drives anti Islamic feeling?
1: The big fear is that it would. The big fear is that it's going to promote some sort of retaliation, some sort of increase in Islamophobia. And we've had calls from both Theresa May and um, the, the the mayor of London to try to not feed into this rhetoric. Now, the arrests that are taking place, it's not yet known. Are they linked directly to this attack or are they under suspicion for some, some other sort of plotting events? The big fear is that these are essentially lone wolf terrorists or self-radicalised. This attacker was, as you mentioned, born in the UK, so he's a British citizen. No known history of being affiliated with any extremist organisations such as Islamic State. So the big danger now is that we're seeing the emergence of these almost self-radicalised individuals.
0: But he had been known to the government in the past and... You, there, there are some sketchy details on that, but uh, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, suggested that he had been investigated some years ago. Um, it, it makes it very difficult, doesn't it? On the one hand, it's good that he, he was known, but on the other hand, uh, the, the fact that there are potentially so many suspects that you can't keep them all locked up, obviously.
1: Well, This is the problem, and it's very hard to track. Any, I mean, if, if we if we had to track everybody who was Googled or searched, something in relation to Islamic State, for example, probably most of the country would would therefore be under suspicion. Now, he had a record for violence activity. I think he had been arrested for carrying a knife at one point, and he had been noted years ago for being a violent extremist, but they didn't necessarily mention that it was religiously orientated or that it was linked to any specific group. So again, it's very sketchy still at this early stage.
0: Yes, it certainly would appear that way. Um, as far as the feeling in Britain and, and Europe as a whole, we're coming up to that big Brexit moment uh, soon. D- does that affect the solidarity? We saw Paris turn off the Eiffel Tower lights and, and absolutely stress the unity of London and Paris in this, which was an interesting moment amidst you know, the rest of the Brexit drama.
1: Yeah, I think Brexit is is the political aspect. And I think that terrorism or acts of violence like this bring out the more human side of everybody. So I think we can all appreciate Paris had their own issues, of course, Brussels. We, we've had a, a legacy of these attacks now emerging overall. I think what's happening with Brexit here is that there's more of an undertone of nationalistic tendencies that is coming out. So we're seeing a slight rise in issues like racism, Islamophobia, and that may be stirring tensions within the country. And the fear now is that we would see some sort of retaliation against possibly the Muslim community because of the attack like this, which would, of course, then feed back into the rhetoric of groups like Islamic State.
0: The the fact that um, we've got a a police officer among the victims, a a US citizen, do you think that um, also heightens not only the global interest in this, but also the need for some sort of firm response? Not that, uh, of course, there's been any lack of appetite for this so-called war on terror. Yes, I think it
1: definitely needs to be highlighted the fact that, again, because these acts are becoming a little bit more um, homegrown, a little bit more domestic, that we need to be more vigilant in, in, in a way. But I think that we need to have a balance between almost the fear-mongering that we've seen with the Trump um, presidency a little bit. There needs to be a balance between that and kind of sane reaction, I- I, for lack of a better context. Mm, we do yeah. need to react to these things, but we don't. We shouldn't overreact because we're simply then feeding into this this idea that a minority community are being targeted that everyone is being painted with the same brush as those who are carrying out these attacks. That's the wrong way to approach things.
0: Professor Underhill, thanks for joining us today. No problem. Uh, great to have you on the line. Professor Natasha Underhill out of Nottingham Trent, University. And we'll continue into our next interview, staying with the theme of the European Union. This weekend, EU leaders will come together in Rome to mark the 60th anniversary of a treaty which laid the foundations for the EU as we know it today. It should be a celebration, but some might suggest the Union has never faced such challenges for survival even as it does now. Let's bring in Professor Martin Tribus, European Law and Policy at the University of Birmingham. Good to have you on the line as well. Hello. So so first off, could you tell us how the EU has evolved over the past 60 years? It's been far from stagnant, we can say.
2: No, uh, it started as a small six-member state uh, community just on coal and steel, uh to be enlarged to uh, a 28 member state european union uh including many other policy fields including a common foreign and security policy uh and a justice and home affairs policy um over those 60 years uh there have not only been happy years uh there were the years of um, the crisis of the 1960s when france uh, didn't want to cooperate anymore and there were the 70s, which were often described as urosclerosis. So there have been ups and downs, but uh, overall, um, well, 60 years of progress to what is called ever closer union.
0: What do you think are the greatest achievements? If you could just highlight a couple, perhaps.
2: I I always uh, name the three Ps, uh, and uh, the first P would be for peace because the whole idea was born, as a response to the Second World War, to ensure uh, peace in Europe, which hadn't been uh, a peaceful uh, continent before that. Uh, and uh, I think it is widely acknowledged that the EU has made a huge contribution to ensure peace in Western Europe and now in almost the entirety of Europe. Uh, another one would be, the second P would be prosperity of by creating a, a common market Uh, with a free movement of goods and services and workers and so forth, uh, the continent as a whole is richer than it would be if all the 28 countries had been kept separate. Uh, And finally, a P for power, simply the EU as uh, an instrument to mitigate the fact that European countries are rather small and would probably be pushed around if they were all on their own, whereas by pulling together, by bundling... Uh, their sovereignty and acting together towards the rest of the world, uh, they can uh, push uh, uh, their own agendas and their own interests in a way that they otherwise couldn't.
0: Prime Minister Theresa May of Britain uh, will trigger divorce proceedings with the EU on March 29th, launching two years of negotiations to reshape the future of not just Britain but also Europe. Uh, When do you see those negotiations really starting properly? And, and how do you think the process will pan out?
2: Um, well, negotiations as such will uh, start almost immediately, although there will be a long talks uh, uh, is expected uh, over what exactly should be negotiated and in what order uh, so that I wouldn't actually uh, expect many things of substance being discussed before the end of the year or even later. And uh, what is important to keep in mind is that Article 50 is mainly talking about the divorce deal, the actual uh, um, agreement that would deal with uh, many financial issues and with all the projects that Britain is already dedicated to, how to untangle the involvement in these uh, immediate financial commitments, uh, and uh, project commitments. Um, That is probably something that will depend a lot on money, and I can see already contentious issues there in a bill of uh, possibly over £50 billion being presented to the UK, which will not go down very well. Uh, And then a second deal, which is the future trade deal that is to replace full membership, and that is something that on the basis of experience with trade deals, is very unlikely to be uh, completed within two years, something that will probably take uh, a lot longer to put to pull together. So I would expect uh, negotiations to be very, very difficult indeed, yeah. both with respect to the divorce deal and uh, the long-term trade deal.
0: Or we talk about divorce, perhaps a, a Brexit hangover as well might be uh, appropriate in the in the sort of immediate few years after this negotiation begins. But the loss of Britain, will it trigger a larger fallout, do you think?
2: uh there has been uh, a lot of discussion uh and a couple of countries being identified uh as possibly wanting to leave as well uh, one of them was the netherlands i think uh that was uh hugely exaggerated and the results of the elections last week uh seem to confirm that that uh actually the anti-european party uh did in the end only get 13 percent uh the french elections will be more interesting in that respect although uh, the margins uh, for the anti-European uh, candidate to win the presidency are, are, uh, make it very unlikely that she would win uh, in a second round. And in Germany, uh, the support for the anti-European party is kind of, uh, how can I say, reducing at the moment uh, down to about 10 percent, probably less. Um, and then, of course, all these movements have their own national contexts. Uh, you know, one party will be mainly anti Muslim, the other mainly anti immigrant, another one mainly Euro rather than against the EU. So being against the EU is a rather new phenomenon.
0: Well, Britain's exit comes as Turkey's possible entry into the EU, I mean, it's been looming for years, uh, is under a major cloud. We, we've just heard. In the last day, Turkish President Erdogan warning that we could see a situation in which, to directly quote, no European in any part of the world can walk safely on the streets. He's unhappy with what he sees as Turkey being pulled and pushed around. How seriously do you take his comments?
2: Um, I, I think uh, Turkey is uh, is a very powerful and very uh, uh, important neighbor to the European Union. I think Uh, that this language that is used uh, is quite unfortunate, and that at the end of the day, uh, the EU and Turkey have a lot of shared interests, and um, um, also Turkey should uh, remember uh, the the interests uh, that uh, that they have in common with the EU. And in the end, uh, Turkey would have to lose a lot more from a fallout uh, with the rest, I mean, like a sustainable, long-term uh, fallout uh, with the EU, uh, then the EU would have uh, uh, in in this context.
0: So we've got populism, so thinking, um, we've got uh, anti-EU feeling, we've got uh, anti-Islamic feeling. We've just had this terror attack in London. What what do you see as the biggest threat to the EU at the moment?
2: Um, I would say the. The biggest threat is that uh, the member states, uh, to varying degrees, uh, aim to renationalize power, try to pull back decision-making away from common decision-making from the EU, uh, uh, back to their own national sphere. I see protectionism uh, as a threat. Um, These seems to be uh, how can I say sounds that we hear from the new uh, United States uh, administration, uh, and perhaps from other parts of the world? Perhaps not dealing with the problems such as uh, a, a refugee uh, influx that will continue, that is not going to stop, uh, and also uh, I, I assume uh, a return of uh, of uh, financial problems, uh, and yes, of course, uh, conflict. Um, especially at the doorsteps of Europe uh, most prominently in Syria and uh, and the consequences that that has.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Tribus.
2: My pleasure. Uh, Thank Professor, you very much for having me.
0: Well, the pleasure is ours. Professor Martin Tribus from the University of Birmingham. Looking ahead to a weekend, as we said, should really have been a moment for celebration, 60 years of the European Union, or at least of the treaty being signed to lay the foundations for the EU as we know it, but uh, so many other issues overshadowing that. You can text us your thoughts right now, powder sharp 1013 for 51 per message.